Okay, well, hello everybody. I'm going to talk to you today about innate lymphocytes and mostly about NK cells since we know about them most. And uh, I have a couple of breaks in various segments to uh, allow you to uh, ask some questions and she will be kind of organizing that. So these are some of my uh, uh, my advisory boards that I deal with and help with in KSL projects. So as Stephanie told you, you know, the uh, there's kind of two waves to the immune system. I call the first one the speed bump. If you don't have the speed bump with the NK cells and myeloid cells and some of these innate cells, in fact, you don't have time to develop a B and T cell response to help clean up the uh, damage. So NK cells uh, have been known for a, since about 1975, but in the past decade, we appreciate they have some cousins, which are known as the ILCs. All of these uh, innate lymphoid cells come from the same progenitor. And as they go down and turn on or off various transcription factors, they can be made into, into things called ILC1s, ILC2s, ILC3s, and these lymphoid-inducing cells. So this just shows some of the transcription factors that can control the fate of these. So what do these, what do these innate cells do? So, you know, much akin to, you know, the Th1 and Th2 and Th17 T cells, but they can specialize in various abilities to make certain cytokines or to kill or not kill. And also then to deal with different types of infection or damage. So for example, the ILC1s and the NK cells particularly love the cytokines IL-12, 15, and 18, largely made by myeloid cells. These induce killer type cells and cells that are quite good at making gamma interferon. You can imagine those are quite useful if you wanna deal with a viral or a bacterial infection. And then they in turn make a series of cytokines to activate their neighbors. For example, the NK cells or ILCs can make lots of gamma interferon quickly, which can help macrophages eat bacteria better. The ILC2s, in fact, those, they are uh, induced by IL-25, 33, and TSLP. These ILC2s, again, act much like a TH2 T cell in making IL-4, 5, 13. And again, these can be involved in a variety of kind of barrier protection, for example, in your lung. The type 3 ILCs are more akin to like the TH17 lineage. Again, to generate these cells, these respond to IL-1 beta and IL-23, and in turn, they can make cytokines like IL-17, 22, and GM-CSF. And these have been shown to be important, for example, in the gut to, to help secrete microbial peptides and deal with tissue damage. So some years ago, uh, the, uh, Christoph Benoit at Harvard pulled together a lot of us to transcriptionally profile um, all of the immune cells in a mouse. So this is a really great uh, resource if you haven't used it before. In fact, there's a typo here. It should be imgen.org.com. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we and Marco Clover's lab sorted in K cells, ILC1, 2, and 3, transcriptionally profiled those cells 
and then ask, you know, what's the relationship? I don't see one and threes. Uh, I mean, I don't see ones and in case cells are transcriptionally so similar, they're very hard to distinguish. Whereas more distinct are the ILC2s and ILC3s. These, as I mentioned, these ILC2s protect against parasite and help with wound repair. And again, in response to cytokines that are made by other cells like IL-33 and 25, these uh, ILC2s, for example, can then make cytokines, for example, IL-13 or IL-5, which we know are important for recruiting things like eosinophils and also uh, helping in wound repair. Similarly, ILC3s, these are known to protect against certain extracellular bacteria and again, help damage in your uh, barrier tissues. And they do this by secreting the cytokines 22 and 17. And that can then, in fact, also those cytokines can induce your epithelial cells to start making things like defensins, which help to control local infections. So one of the uh, problems that we've uh, seen is that these ILCs are quite plastic. They're a bit more like myeloid cells in that if you take, for example, an ILC3 and soak it in IL-12, or it's in a, uh, a, uh, a microenvironment in which IL-12 is being made by myeloid cells, it can take on the properties of ILC1. So in K cells are pretty stable beast and don't change much. But the ILCs 1, 2, and 3, in fact, when exposed to different cytokines, can they're chameleons. So that's kind of made it hard to be able to you know, characterize them well because they're not stable. People have done fate mapping and show that these things can flip between various phenotypes. In mice, you can do that with these fate reporter mice to know what was made first and whether it's no longer made and something new's made. But in humans, trying to track these is a more difficult process. So my first question for you, you know, if we say that, you know, if in K cells are basically a CD8 T cell, which has killer capacity, just not a T cell receptor, and the ILC1s are kind of like TH1s and ILC2s are like, uh, ILC2s are like TH2s and ILC3s are like TH17, why bother to create two parallel systems? Anybody got any thoughts about that? And I'll get, I'll get, Shib, I, I can't see the chat, so I have to rely on Shib to help me. Sorry, the answers are quicker, rapid system versus specific systems, fast responses, uh, ILCs, yeah, memories response is required. ILCs don't mediate effective functions like killing. ILCs are plastic. They are a backup system. I'm just giving you all the answers. Okay, very good. I mean, I think it is the issue of, you know, these, particularly the ILCs, are largely tissue bound. You find very few, other than in K cells, obviously, you find very few ILCs in circulation. They are pretty much tissue resident most of the time. So they may be just sitting there waiting you won't have a TH1 or a TH2 until you generate it. So these do, again, maybe provide the speed bump that's needed. I know there's a paper about um, 
published a couple of years ago suggesting that they had found some humans that had no ILCs, yet were still okay. But again, it may be that they just haven't run into the, you know, the, to the relevant uh, infection where they needed that speed bump as critically. So next, we're gonna, we're gonna be talking most of the rest of the time now about natural killer cells. So again, these were discovered in 1975 and named by Eva Klein and Rolf Kiesling natural killers because they found if you took lymphocytes from the spleen of a mouse or the blood of a human and put them in a plastic dish with a tumor, they would naturally kill it. So, you know, these cells in humans are best identified by this marker called CD56 or NCAM, not having CD3, and in mouse, either NK11 or NKP46 in lymphocytes without CD3, that's largely the NK population. You know, what do they do? They function in a native immunity against tumors was the first indication, but also we know that they are important for viral infection, bacteria, parasites, fungi, and tumors. They do it by producing cytokines and they can kill abnormal cells. And the way they do the killing is they have prepackaged these nasties, this perforin, this pore forming protein and granzymes, which are proteases, which are packaged in the NK cell. And when the NK cell bumps into another cell and get activated, they move those granules to the interface with the target cell, release them, and it kills the cell. So here's how you find NK cells in you. If you stay in your blood with an antibody against CD3 to see the T cells, and this uh, antibody against this adhesion molecule called CD56, you can see here that in fact, your immature NK cells have high levels of CD56. And as they mature, they downregulate and become CD56 dim. These don't have CD3. They don't rearrange T cell receptors. There are T cells, all T cells in humans can acquire CD56. It's virtually a late activation antigen. So where do they live? Five to 20% of uh, your your blood are in K cells. I got a bonus, mine, I'm about 20% in K cells, so I've been bleeding myself for years to do experiments. You can also find them, essentially all the other uh, lymphoid organs. They're about 5% of spleen. They're quite abundant in the liver, but they're in low frequencies kind of everywhere. You find a few in uninfected lymph nodes, but they will increase with infection. One curious place where you find in K cells is in the decidual women of uh, tissues of women. More than 70% of the lymphocytes in the decidual tissues are in fact in K cells. You find very few B and T cells. And it's been argued about what they're doing there. I think they're providing immune protection to the baby, but there's also been suggestions that they may be producing factors which is bene are beneficial in the, uh, in the placenta. What do they do? They kill, that's how they got their name. They can have intrinsic killing abilities and we'll talk about some of the ways in which they do that. But you can essentially make an NK cell exquisitely specific by coding the target with an IgG1 antibody. Now the NK cell acquires the specificity conferred to it by the B cell 
and can specifically kill certain targeted cells. They also are fabulous producers of gamma interferon. If I bleed you now, put your peripheral blood cells in a plastic dish and put on some IL-12 and 18, the NK cells are making great amounts of gamma interferon within a couple hours. They also can make many of the other uh, factors which are made by T cells, TNF, GMCSF, IL-3, IL-10, and many chemokines. NK cells typically do not make IL-2, 4, 17, or 22. Those are usually being made not by NK cells, but by ILC. But that's been confused because a lot of the ILCs will express many of the quote NK markers. I've only known of you know, one convincing evidence of NK cells making IL-22, and that's in some uh, flu models in the lung. But for example, in other viral infections, I've never seen an NK make IL-22. That's ILC3s. So what do NK cells do as far as regulating other immune cells? Well, in fact, in, as we were talking about earlier, uh, DCs can be killed. NK cells can kill dendritic cells. So you can imagine that this then can, you know, dampen an adaptive immune response. They also can directly kill T cells that are activated too strongly. For example, you know, we've seen that my NK cells can kill my activated CD4 T cells if they become too activated. And several models of autoimmunity, in fact, NK cells are good guys. They kill off the pathogenic autoimmune T cells. That's a good thing. What do you think would happen if you had no NK cells? Shiv, I'll get you to help me here. <laughs> yeah, anyone want to answer the question? Please put it in the chat. It'll come in a second, yeah. yeah. Tumor cells will escape detection, lower tumor regulation, infection, autoimmunity, lots of chronic viral infections, uncontrolled viral infections, um, impaired tumor surveillance, cancer, tumor, recurrent herpes simplex. So uh -huh. <laughs> Very good. You guys are on the right track. <laughs> recurrent abortion. <laughs> so, <HLH. laughs> yep. so let me one of my classmates from graduate school, Christine Byron, who's been at Brown for many years, has been working on cases. She found the first human who had no NK cells, but had normal B and T cells. And this, uh, this young woman, what she kept coming uh, into the hospital for was herpivirus infections. She dealt with the flu fine. She had no problem with, with you know, many of the respiratory uh, viruses but herpes viruses. And you have to remember that there are eight human herpes viruses. And once you get a herpes virus, you never clear it. You will carry it for the rest of your life. So I think that NK cells have evolved to deal with some of these viruses in which you have to stay on guard, you know, for decades, essentially. So we actually uh, have studied a couple of these patients in our lab 
And what it's turned out to, there's many reasons why you can uh, limit, you know, you can not have NK cells. But one, one of the most common reasons is the loss of one copy of this transcription factor called GATA2. And this shows you, what, you know, a patient we've worked on who we sequenced it. One copy of GATA2 had a mutation that was non-functional, but the other allele was fine. And as you can see here, this, this person had no NK cells, but you know, there's plenty of T cells. And in fact, you know, there's plenty of activated T cells that have this CD56 marker. So this, uh, this uh, patient also had problems with herpes viruses, but also papilloma. So the things that have been observed in, in it's a fairly rare condition but these humans who lack NK cells, but have BNT cells, the, the type of diseases that affect them are Epstein-Bivirus, the EBV that causes the herpes virus that causes mononucleosis, cytomegalovirus. The other interesting one is papillomavirus. And in fact, several women who have no NK cells have gotten, have gotten cervical cancer and varicella zoster. So you can see that NK cells have really, you know, co-evolved to deal with certain things. I think that, uh, you know, immunosurveillance and cancer may be important, but most of these people, unless they get a bone marrow transplant, die before they get old enough to get many of the common cancers that require, you know, that are linked to old age, except the papillomavirus. That one sticks out and I still don't understand why NK cells like papillomavirus. So how do NK cells sense their environment? So I think, you know, in many cases, the NK cell does not have a cognate recognition of the pathogen, unless you happen to have an antibody specific for that pathogen. But what they are very good at is NK cells constitutively express cytokine receptors for type 1 interferon, IL-15, IL-12, and IL-18. So in a situation that Stephanie was telling you about, where your epithelial cells or your myeloid cells are stimulated through TLRs or NOD receptors or sting, those cells then start making NK cells favorite cytokines. So as I mentioned, if I have an NK cell, it's in an environment where the local cells are making this IL-12 and IL-18, the NK cells will be making lots of gamma interferon quickly and many chemokines to draw in other cell types. So I think this is one of the most common ways an NK cell actually will respond to an infection. But in fact, a good way that if they're gonna be most useful, the NK cell needs to have cognate recognition of an infected cell or a tumor and kill it. And one way in which they can do this is NK cells can express receptors that can recognize proteins on stressed cells. For example, you know, one, one of the best uh, known receptors is this NKG2D receptor. It's on all NK cells as well as some T cells. 
there are eight different genes encoding self ligands for the NKG2D receptor. But those genes are silent until a cell becomes transformed, having DNA damage, or is infected with a pathogen. Now the cell pops up these stress-induced proteins, and that receptor can now engage, physically bind to that cell and kill it, and make some cytokine. But a, another way, which is a very special case, is in case those can have virus-specific receptors. And in this case, the one we know best is a receptor for cytomegalovirus, a herpes virus. Here, the virus-encoded protein is recognized by the NK cell and triggers a specific response. So how are these NK cell responses regulated? Well, Klaus Schori, when he was a student in Stockholm in uh, the early and mid 80s, made the really cool observation that NK cells like to kill cells that have lost their MHC class one. Klaus called this recognition of missing self. Class one was gone and the NK cells paid attention to that. And the way he did this was he had a T cell lymphoma, which would kill mice. He made mutants of that T cell lymphoma that knocked out the, H uh, the, the H2 class one genes. Now he put those same tumors into mice and they were rejected. That was counterintuitive because class one was supposed to allow the mouse's CD8 T cells to see it and kill it. That didn't happen. But when you took away class one, the NK cells would then eliminate that tumor. If you depleted the NK cells, the tumor would grow again. So, you know, but, but I remember having this argument with Klaus at the time. He was saying, well, uh, you know, just a cell will loss MHC and the NK cell will attack it. I said, well, that can't be so. Because for example, retina cells in us have no MHC class one. We're not anemic. So you need NK cells to have an activating ligand on the cell that have lost class one to make it go. And you know, decades later, we now appreciate that NK cell functions are controlled by this nice balance of inhibiting and activating receptors. So NK cells constantly bump into other cells. Two things are happening. The activating receptors are seeing if that host cell has enough activating ligands to give a go signal to mount killing, cytokine production, and proliferation. But there's a fail safe. Normal cells that have normal amounts of class one can engage inhibiting receptors, which says, hold on, I'm okay. Well, why did this, uh, why did NK cells kind of evolve this, this behavior? I think it's because many viruses, and as we know now, lots of tumors lose class one. Herpes viruses, you know, are really specialized in doing this. Many of the herpes viruses like CMV and, and herpes virus eight and Epstein-Barr virus and HSV-1 they make specific viral proteins that block class one production. So when class one goes down, 
they're invisible to CD8 T cells, but now the NK cells are easier to mount an attack. So how do you, how do you see class one? Turns out that in humans, we have a family of genes called the Kears or killer cell IgA-like receptors. And some people like me have seven Kier genes. Others of you have 12 Kier genes. And these are incredibly polymorphic. After HLA, the Kiers are the most polymorphic genes in you. There's over a thousand alleles, and none of us have the exact same Kier repertoire. These, these genes do not rearrange, but it's interestingly, a single NK cell can decide to turn on one allele and silence the other. These Kiers are expressed by subsets of NK cells in kind of a stochastic pattern. But memory T cells actually upregulate both CD4s and CD8s when they're chronically activated, turn on the cure genes and they work. These cure genes kind of come in two flavors. The ones we call cure 2DLs. These have two Ig domains on the outside of the cell. These recognize your HLAC alleles and the cure 3 ELs can recognize HLA A and B. Most cure genes are inhibitory and recognize class one. There are some cures that in fact activate and they do so by associating with this adapter protein that behaves like CD3. And we know that cure polymorphisms have been associated with protection against both HIV as well as hepatitis C. As I mentioned, the cure genes are extremely polymorphic. You can see here that, as I mentioned, some people have 12 cure genes. I only have seven, and there's a hundred, over a thousand alleles at these 14 loci. So the way these things work is the cures bind to MAC class one ligands. Again, the cure 2Ds, CHLAC, the 3D CHLA A and B, and that dampens the NK cell response. So it becomes a battle of how much inhibition you have versus how much activation. You can kill a class one bearing cell if it starts to express high copies of the activating ligands. You wouldn't want it to not work at all. However, if class one goes away, the threshold to kill goes way down. So what are the activating receptors? In humans, we have four different activating receptors that essentially are hooked up to adapter proteins that give them T cell receptor-like activation properties. For example, your FC receptor CD16, this, one, this receptor is what allows NK cells to kill antibody-coded targets. It signals through either CD3 zeta chain. That is a predominant CD3 subunit that allows for T cell activation. In humans, all NK cells express zeta chain, as do in mice. And these are these ITAM-containing adapters, which recruit ZAP70 or sick. Sick, sick kinases 
which then give you the downstream activation. Humans also had this in KP46 and in KP30, again signaling through those FC gamma or zeta subunits. And there's another activating NK receptor called NKP44, only on activated NK cells, that uses this adapter called DAP12. In addition, you know, as with T cells, NK cells have what I call co-activated receptors. When you engage these alone, they really don't trigger a killing response by themselves typically. However, they cooperate beautifully together in combinations or with those ITAM. And this is four that are well characterized, which can give these boosting signals into human NK cells. So I mentioned NKG2D is a really nice receptor. It's on all your NK cells. It's on all human CD8T cells. It's on almost all gamma delta cells. It is an activating receptor or co-receptor, which is looking for cells that aren't happy. We have about eight genes in humans that can make these stress-induced proteins that are induced when a cell is upset. In humans, two of them are called MIC-A and MIC-B. These are in the MHC. And then another cluster of genes called ULPP1 through 6 that, in fact, all of these are upregulated in different conditions on cells that are proliferating too badly or have DNA damage. And many pathogen infections upregulate those. Mice have a parallel system of genes called the RAISE and MOLT1 and H60s. So what do we know about these? These NKG2D ligands, they're class one-like proteins. They've all been crystallized, but they don't need peptides or beta-2. They can bind with, some of them bind with nanomolar affinity. Healthy tissues have very little of these ligands, but they can be induced on virally infected cells by many different types of viruses. They're frequently upregulated on tumor cells. And Dave Rollet many years ago showed that in fact DNA damage, which turns on the ATM ATR repair pathway can turn some of these genes on. That's good when this happens in virally infected cells or tumors, but in some autoimmune diseases, these things get popped up inadvertently. And there's clinical trials going on right now to see if you can block this pathway to have beneficial effects, for example, in Crohn's disease. So when I first started working on NK cells, they were called null cells because it was thought they had no receptors, which seemed kind of silly at the time. We now know that, in fact, NK cells are extraordinarily diverse. As I mentioned, you know, there's over a thousand alleles of Kier, but uh, Catherine Blitch did a nice study that I wrote a commentary on a few years ago, where it was one of the first studies using a cytof, mass cytometry. She took about 40 antibodies that would see various receptors on NK cells and stained just normal peripheral blood. What her conclusion was that is in your blood, you have more than 30,000 different flavors of NK cells. Some of them are in different stages of differentiation or activation. And also because of all these polymorphic genes, 
diversity is a myth. So stop here and uh, what, well, you know, tumors have lost class one and this does happen you know, reasonably frequently. Why don't the NK cells kill them? Some ideas? Yeah, I'll wait for the answer. There are a few questions for you as well, but I'll let them answer these. They don't have co-stimulatory ligands. No curves. Can excess mix shedding expression of inhibitory downregulation of NKG2D, wrong balance of activating ligands, can't access ligands because of an anti-inflammatory environment on the tumor, NKG2D ligand secreted as decoy. Yep. Very good. <laughs> okay. There's a question for you about CD57 and does it play a role in NK function? What's the best marker to identify adaptive NK cells? I mean, I'm not sure what exactly is meant by that. Do you think age can impact NK cell frequency and function? Yeah, so uh, the, the frequency doesn't change very much with age, but the function definitely does. So, you know, and that is a progression all the way out into, you know, people that live to be 100 years old. Um, the, remind me of the other question, Shiv? Uh, 57, what's the role of CD57? Okay, 57 is a carbohydrate antigen. I started working on it years ago. I still don't know what that carbohydrate does, but it's a very good marker for NK, human NK cells that have undergone uh, a lot of proliferation. So it tracks well with how many times the NK cell has expanded. And the ones with 57 have very good effector function, but they are kind of at the end of the road as far as being able to further proliferate is our understanding. The adaptive NK cell, that uh, it's what I call a memory NK cell. And I think the best marker in human is actually the loss of the FC gamma signaling subunit. Now they only use zeta. So if you do flow cytometry and stain, you know, naive NK cells, they're all FC gamma positive. But these ones that we call adaptive or memory, the best marker is actually the retention of zeta and the quenching, and it's been shown to be done by methylation of the FC gamma subunit. Okay. There's another question, Lewis. Okay. Why are the curves so polymorphic? I think because they're chasing HLA, which is also very polymorphic. So, in fact, even if you look at chimpanzees, the cures in chimps and us are very different. But as you appreciate, the MHC class one, the HLA, A, B, and C, they have been diversifying like crazy. So it's not just to get lost, in the Kiers had to keep up and do that in a polymorphic fashion because their ligands were, were quite polymorphic and rapidly changing. Okay. okay. Okay, so, you know, I think here are some of the reasons why NK cells don't kill class one negative. You know, an obvious one, the tumor has been edited and has lost the activating ligands. So now there's nothing to turn them on, even if class one is not there. It's like your red cells. You know? But I think more commonly, 
and we've seen this happen, is that NK cells kill some tumors, but without cytokines, NK cells can't make their own growth factors. All those receptors I told you about, those activating receptors, will trigger killing, but it doesn't allow the NK cell to expand kind of more than one, one, one division. NK cells really need cytokines like IL-12 and IL-15 that are made by their neighbors like during a real viral infection. Tumors are not secreting a lot of IL-12 or a lot of IL-15. If an NK cell starts killing, they become desensitized. Some people will call it energy or exhaustion, but I call it desensitized. We can revive them, but if an NK cell kills a few tumor cells, but doesn't have a neighbor making some gas to rejuvenate it, it just becomes a dud. It won't kill anymore and it won't proliferate. The other possibility is that, you know, there are a number of other inhibitory receptors on NK cells that see ligands other than class one. So if the tumor lost class one, but then you selected for the tumor, which had ligands for the other inhibiting receptors, again, tumor wins. And finally, you know, one of the, uh, one of the answers was, uh, that was mentioned was the suppressive stuff in the tumor microenvironment. NK cells hate TGF beta. So if an NK cell crawls into a solid tumor and it's loaded with TGF beta, it is shut down. We've seen that occur in NK cells in glioblastoma patients in the tumor. They, they've been soaked in TGF beta, they quit killing. If we put them in a plastic dish back with some cytokine, like some IL-15, we can rejuvenate them. That's what we are hoping to do clinically. Again, I mentioned that, you know, NK cells do have a number of inhibiting receptors. We in fact have three classes of inhibiting receptors for MHC class one. The KIRs I told you about, which see HLA-ABC. Another one called CD94 NKG2A. This recognizes HLA-E. And you have another inhibiting receptor, which is mostly on macrophages and monocytes called LILRB1. And that sees monomorphic class one. It sees all alleles of class one. Here's the collection of inhibitory receptors that you can find on NK cells. So this is really making them behave. And as you will see, you know, almost all of these or all, all of these are also expressed on T cells. So what are some strategies we can use to modulate NK cell function? So again, you know, this checkpoint blockade, uh, anti-cures have gone into the clinic as monotherapy, they haven't worked. Uh, there are clinical trials ongoing with NKG2A, which is on NK cells and T cells. And NK cells also express TEM3 and LAG3, which are in clinical trials. Everybody's T cell centric and think that that may be the answer. But in fact, these checkpoint molecules may also be inhibiting the activity of the NK cells so they are in the game. I mentioned one of the best ways, and in fact, one of the you know ways in which the mode of action of some drugs already 
is antibody-dependent cellular killing, or ADCC. For example, rituxan, and this, these antibodies against, for example, CD38 in multiple myeloma, the way these antibodies work is the antibody, these human IgG1 antibodies, coat the myeloma cells or the B cells, in K cells expressing this activating FC receptor called CD16, comes in, engages, and even if the tumor has class one, the CD signal, CD16 signal is so strong, it overcomes that inhibition mediated by KIRS or NKG2A. Of course, if the tumor lost the class one, that's even better. Also, there's a lot of activity in making bispecific antibodies. Many of you have probably heard of the bispecific antibodies for T cells, where one arm would be CD3 and the other would be an anti-tumor antibody. Well, in, in clinical trials right now are many antibodies kind of doing the same thing with NK cell activating receptors using CD16 and others are being, are being tested. In one arm grabs the tumor, the other arm grabs the activating NK receptor, NK cell goes and kills. There's also a number of therapies that can upregulate the stress-induced ligands on tumors or agents that activate the NK cells. So for example, many cytokines like IL-15, IL-12, IL-2 are really good at jazzing up the NK. The problem is delivering them so that you don't get systemic toxicities. It's also been shown that some chemotherapeutic agents, in fact, will upregulate some of those stress ligands, again, allowing the NK cell to go, assuming that those, those treatments haven't also taken out the NK cells. And there's a lot of attention going on right now of using CAR NK cells in addition to CAR T cells. Uh, Katie Rizzani at MD Anderson has done the first trials in humans, taking a CD19 41BB uh, Zeta CAR, putting it into an NK cell, in that, in her case, cord blood NK cells, and in fact has shown that they can be uh, effective. We're wondering now if we can make them better, and we're worried about the persistence because NK cells don't live as long as T cells. So will these CAR NK stick around long enough to really keep in check and prevent relapse? That's an outstanding question in the field right now. Finally, uh, I want to tell you that I'm, uh, you'll be hearing more about uh, T cells later, but there are many classes of T cells that behave a lot like NK cells and in fact can often express, quote, these NK receptors. And this includes MR1 restricted T cells, these uh, mate cells, invariant INK T cells, T cells that see CD1 and gamma delta T cells. Again, they behave in many cases, they're kind of in this gray zone between a classic T cell and INK cells. So what I'd like to uh, hope I've learned that you've learned about today is there's this family of innate lymphocytes. You know, one of their characteristics is rapid cytokine production. NK cells keep you alive during certain viral infections. Their behavior is regulated by inhibiting and activating receptors. Those receptors are evolving like crazy. And NK cells can have immunological 
immunological memory, in particular against cytomegalovirus. With that, I'll uh, leave you with a couple of recent reviews and take questions. Thanks. There are lots of, there are a lot of questions uh, that I'll start out with. Okay. First question is if there are type one tissue signals like IL-12, IL-15, IL-18, is there any distinction made between ILC1s and NKs or do they both get activated? Um, so like ILC1s and NKs, they will both respond to the same cytokines. A main difference is NK cells are, you know, really good professional killers in that they are loaded with granzymes and perforin. The ILCs are just more, they're more, you know, driven towards cytokine delivery. And also ILC1s, I think, can mediate some trail-mediated killing, but they're usually pretty deficit in perforins and granzymes. And they're very inabundant. In case those are 20% of my blood, my ILC1s, you know, if they make 0.1%, that's a lot. So when CMV induces adaptive NK cells, is that because of some unique molecules? Um, it, at least in, in mice, uh, in, in mice, it, it's because they have a specific receptor. They have a receptor that sees a CMV protein. And in humans, we have a receptor called NKG2C that drives a response against CMV. And that's almost like a T cell, T -cell receptor type of activation process. The memory NK cells do epigenetically look quite distinct from, you know, a naive NK cells. Uh, and, but, you know, which of those are actually responsible for the memory phenotype is not worked out, but obviously, you know, under investigation in a lot of labs. Are there demographic differences between curves? Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, Peter Parham has done a beautiful job showing that you can kind of trace different ethnic groups uh, based on their frequency of different alleles. Okay. What is the best marker for tissue resident NK cells like in the liver? And is this different between using flow or tissue staining? Uh, you know, I think that as with, with T cells, most people will use like CD103 and CD69. They're not perfect, but that's probably the, you know, the closest we can get to a, to a tissue resident marker. Which NK cell receptors play a vital role in tackling CMV? Uh, in mouse, it's these LY49H in black six mice and in other strains, LY49P and L. Those are activating LY49 using DAP12. In humans, the NKG2C activating receptor linked through DAP12, that population of NK cells reproducibly massively expands in many people who undergo CMV infection. So those, those are the two best two. We don't know the precise ligand yet for the human NKG2C. For mouse, OI49H, we know the viral ligand. It's a protein called M157 in the CMV genome. And there's co-crystals of the receptor in the ligand. How do NK cells recognize and kill autoimmune, autoimmune reactive T cells? Um, autoreactive. 
Yeah. So uh, we and others have, have some papers. One of them is one way in which that can happen is when CD4 T cells are, you know, activated to very strong proliferation, they upregulate like MCA and MCB. So now the NKG2D receptor on NK cells, when the NK cell is activated, will kill, and you can block that process with an NKG2D antibody. We, we published that a few years ago. And several people have seen that. So wouldn't that happen in viral infection? Yes, in fact, uh, a little known secret is in viral infection, if you deplete NK cells, you get a stronger T cell response because the NK cell aren't taking out the most highly proliferating antiviral T cells. But again, that may stop pathology of having too strong of a T cell response and getting off target uh, pathology. So for CD16 mediated targeting, are NK cells mostly armed or do they mostly bind coated cells? So the CD16 FC receptor for monomeric IgG, the affinity is almost nothing. So it doesn't pre-arm the NK. However, when the IgG binds to the target cell, it undergoes a conformational change, which increases the affinity for CD16. And then it is allowed to kill. It's not like a mast cell, which is pre-armed. Another question is, can an NK cell defect underlie any T cell mediated autoimmunity? Yeah, I mean, it's anecdotal because there are so few of these GATA2 deficient uh, patients. But in fact, one of the patients we had had type 1, had, had type one uh, diabetes. And there's been a couple of other of these patients who have no NK cells who have shown various autoimmune phenomena, maybe because the NK cells aren't taking out those autoreactive T cells. In mouse models, it's been shown that in a, a mouse predisposed to having autoimmunity, if you get rid of NK cells, the autoimmunity gets worse. May ILCs be performing T helper-like functions in lower organisms without adaptive immunity? I assume in invertebrates. In this scenario, may they have some sort of memory. Uh, there, you know, so uh, Fumio Takei has shown that ILC2s can have memory in lung pathogen, uh, lung models. Uh, I, I think ILCs, NK cells and ILCs kind of co-evolved with T cells. I don't know of any evidence that ILCs came up evolutionarily before, um, before T cells come up. Macrophages obviously did, but ILCs, I think, are, I call them first cousins of CD4 and CD8 T cells, and I think they co-evolved. Okay, this is a therapeutic question. Do you think underlying NK cell deficiencies impact the success of monoclonal antibody treatments, for example, rituxan treatment? If so, do you think that peripheral NK cell phenotyping could inform the decision to use monoclonal antibodies or some other therapy? Like, um, yeah, what's, what's already known, which has been done by you know many different uh, clinical studies, is the CD16 FC receptor in human is polymorphic. There's a higher affinity CD16 and a lower affinity CD16. 
patients who have the high affinity CD16 do better with rituxan than do people who have the low affinity. And in fact, now when people are engineering these CAR NK cells, they're putting in the high affinity CD16 so that they can then arm those with antibodies. Then there's some descriptions of stem cells in epithelial lineages downregulating MHC class one to avoid being targeted by immune cells. Since NK cells can target them, how are they maintained? Is there a lack of activating ligand on these epithelial cells? That I don't know. Or, or they're making a bunch of PGF beta. <laughs> Probably a combination of both of those could be true. Or they're upregulating another inhibitory receptor against one of those other inhibiting receptors on NK. So I think probably all the above may be the real answer. How do you connect uh, NK cell changes with aging and how does that link to diseases associated with aging? Um, well, there, there have been studies that uh, in, in K cells, when you, when you get older, you start accumulating these NK cells with PD, CD57 that have shorter telomeres. Um, and, you know, why your telomerase isn't working as efficiently anymore, we don't know. Um, in general, I, I don't know of um, specific diseases that are, you know, you can directly link to NK cells in older individuals. Uh, what defines ILCs as lymphocytes? Is it development or maturation or function? Um, it, you know, it was initially morphology, <laughs> pathologist, but beyond that, yes, we, we do know now that people are tracking, you know, hematopoietic stem cells going to the various lineages, you know, there is a progenitor that you can turn into a T cell by putting it in a thymus environment. And if we take that same progenitor cell and give it some cytokines and some notch ligands, turn it into ILCs. So there is, you know, there is developmental evidence that, uh, you know, they do come from the same mother. What, be, besides CD1, I, I think you meant CD16 maybe, any other receptors contribute to ADCC? Um, so, you know, for example, we showed years ago, you can block ADCC if you throw in a neutralizing antibody against LFA1 or CD11. So integrins are required to make a stable contact. So the signaling is going through CD16. Uh, you can also, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a, there is a crosstalk between CD2 and CD16. So CD2's ligand is CD58. So in humans, you do kind of get a cooperation between CD2 and 16. So this question is, it's asking you whether there's the lacking FCR gamma receptors, would that, could that be linked to CMV negative subjects? Um, I don't fully understand it, but. Uh, yeah, okay, typically. Lacking FC receptor and CMV. So I, I think the question would be, what we know is when CMV drives this adaptive or memory program, you get the accumulation of these cells that have lost FC gamma. 
But if you if you look at CMV uh, zero negative people, those cells are less frequent, although they can still exist. So we think there may be some memory cells seeing something other than CMV, but haven't found it yet. Okay, so this is about the loss of the I, the item uh, yeah. bearing chain. Okay, right. Uh, do NK cells also kill RNA viruses? I think he must be in RNA virus infected cells. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, NK cells can kill you know many different uh, virally infected cells, and one of the mechanisms is known is you know many viruses will upregulate those ligand for, ligands for NKG2D. That's probably one of the most common ways in which they would see many classes of viruses. Does the flu vaccination also elicit, elicit NK cytotoxicity? If so, how? Is this also possible with COVID vaccination? <laughs> so we're doing a little project on COVID right now. <laughs> so I, I, um, the, the, the answer is in in mice at least, um, we have seen that NK cells make absolutely no difference to flu infection. If we infect mice with flu, in fact, NK cells come into the lung to take a look and they'll upregulate CD69, but when we deplete them, it has absolutely no effect on viral titers and no effect on you know, weight loss. So they, they, they come in as uh, bystanders and you can see uh, in fact, you know, some evidence for their activation, but they have no protective role. And I think in humans, uh, you know, papers are kind of mixed, but I think it's kind of a similar story. Uh, right now, we're doing uh, some experiments uh, with patients who, you know, have various amounts of COVID to look. And um, it's early days, there's changes in the NK cell population but I don't know whether it's like flu, whether it's irrelevant or meaningful. Okay, so this is a relation to decidual tissue and fetal development. NKs seem to be nature's preferred immune cell to field in a friendly allo context. What is the interplay between Kerr types and the HLA types in the context of donor selection for adoptive cell therapies? Um, so the uh, I think the, the the first the first part of it is there is uh, Ashley Moffat and Peter Parham have extensively looked at the genetics of Kears and the uh, and kind of the mismatch with HLA of whether you get spontaneous abortions and there's something going on there and I'll refer refer you to Ashley Moffat and Peter's papers to dive into that when you have the Kier mismatch whether that can lead to these increased spontaneous abortions. Uh, the second was uh, about adoptive transfer. Yeah, and so, donor selection for adoptive yeah. cell therapies. Yeah, so this uh, goes back about 20 years to Andre Velarde in Italy had observed that after bone marrow transplantation, if you had a Kier HLA mismatch, that was good. The NK cells weren't inhibited and he had less relapse in lymphoma patients and leukemia patients. Uh, Jeff Miller in Minnesota has been deliberately trying to do adoptive NK cell therapy where he deliberately puts in cures that won't see the class one on the recipient's tumor. 
and it has some effect. Uh, it's fairly complicated with all the polymorphisms to get that 